Hey guys, it's Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship. At our most recent Blackjack Bootcamp, we were incredibly fortunate to have Andy Block come and uh, be a guest speaker at the bootcamp. For those who don't know Andy Block, he was on one of the famous MIT teams known as the Amphibians that was featured in the book Busting in Vegas. Uh, he has multiple engineering degrees and a law degree. He's been a professional poker player, has won multiple World Series of Poker bracelets, and is an all-around good guy. So uh, this is our interview with him at our most recent boot camp. Hope you guys enjoy. Thank you, guys. Uh, I just want to say first, it's great to be here and to see so many people still interested in playing the game and beating the casinos, and it's it's great. Just like you know, Tommy said, like it's you know we're all one of the reasons we do this because you know we like to take money from the the casinos, you know, the bad guys. Yes. So awesome. Well, why don't you tell us uh, just how you got into Advantage Play? Yeah, I was always into playing games, and in the MIT, when I went to MIT, there was always this rumor that there was an MIT blackjack team, and um, at one point, I remember there was a story in the, in the, the uh, local school newspaper that like a janitor had found a bag of like $100,000 in cash in the classroom. And there was all these theories about what it was, and some people thought, like, I mean, maybe it's like some drug deal or, you know, whatever. And years later, I learned that it was uh, one of the uh, leaders of the MIT blackjack team at the time had just left a backpack with $100,000 cash into it after a blackjack uh, training session in one of the classrooms. Um, but I didn't get involved with the blackjack team until a couple years later on. I was uh, started, uh, I got, like, fired from my job, and I was looking for new things to do and I took up poker and then I started playing a lot of poker and started going to uh, Foxwoods Casino when it was fairly new in Connecticut and they had this game there that was one invented by one of the people at Foxwoods one of the vice presidents it was called Hickok Six Card Poker and it looked interesting and I went home and I wrote some computer program and and another computer program analyzed it, figured out we had a 6% advantage as the player. The only problem was it was a $50 maximum bet, and it was really slow, so you couldn't earn too much. But I thought, like, hey, maybe I could find the MIT Blackjack team, and we could play this. We could actually have a team of students go down there and beat the game. And uh, I ended up, the MIT Blackjack team actually found me, um, <laughs> One of the guys, uh, one of the leaders, actually the guy that had left the cash in the classroom, um, he started to play poker, and he wanted to start an MIT poker team. And I had just won a small tournament at Foxwoods. And um, he you know, approached me to help him join that team, and I said, hey, I got this game that we can also do. And I showed him all my work, my simulations and stuff, and then he had another friend of his, Semyon Dukach, who... Uh, he was uh, wrote uh, the the second book that Ben Mesrick wrote about blackjack was about mostly focused on Semyon and and our half of the blackjack team. Um, you know they said, hey, okay, let's do that. We'll we'll do poker and we can do the Hickox poker. We did that for like six months. Then they realized like we were beating them and changed the rules and it wasn't beatable anymore. But uh, then they just recruited me and several of the other people onto the blackjack team. And that was like in the early 90s. And so, you know, I uh, eventually, so I still had, I had a job, I got a new job and, um, 
But eventually, it didn't make any sense for me to like keep going to my job. Like I would fly to Vegas, kind of like in the movie Twenty One. We'd fly to Vegas. We'd take the red eye back. I'd wake up in the you know on the airplane like a couple times. I think I had to be woken up by the by the flight attendant. Um, I think I actually woke myself up. But anyway, I would like wake up, drive to work, and then go to work, or you know go to work late, or I'd spend the first couple of hours at work instead of like doing the program I was supposed to do, I would like write poker and blackjack simulations <laughs> on my computer. And, um, you know, I had like a poker analysis website and, and then this was like in the mid-93 or 94 before like, you know, Amazon was around or right around when Amazon started, I think. Um, so eventually, I, you know, it didn't make any sense. So I quit my job and started playing blackjack and poker full time. And... Um, it worked out pretty well for a few years, and then I got a little bored, and I thought, like, maybe I should do something else. So I applied to law school, and I somehow got into Harvard, and so I didn't know if I wanted to go, and a friend of mine said, hey, you got into Harvard, you have to go. So <laughs> I went, I used my blackjack earnings to pay for law school, and then when I graduated, instead of getting a law degree, I went back to playing poker and blackjack. And <laughs> I need an MD. Yeah. So I did take the bar, but only uh, only because I won a, the bar review exam in a charity auction. So. <laughs> and uh, so I am still licensed. I'm actually an attorney, but I've only ever represented myself. <laughs> um, I have a little bit better record than Tommy Highland. I'm 5-0 and representing myself instead of, uh, you know, 1 and a 5, uh, what, 11, 10 and 1 or something. Yeah. But... Um, I was only arrested four times playing blackjack uh, in three different countries and an Indian reservation. So quite a variety of different situations. Um, And, um, you know, the poker boom took off, so I just kept playing poker. And, um, you know, the blackjack, it was especially once I got, you know, well-known as a poker player, it was harder for me to play without getting recognized. So I just, I haven't really been playing a lot of blackjack Lately, uh, mostly poker and um, starting a family and et cetera. So, um, you know, so, it's, it's great to be here. And Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, when you would uh, get bored being a professional gambler traveling the world, it's like, well, I need a good story, so I'll go to law school. <laughs> I can, uh, you know, tell people about that time I went to law school rather than like that time I was a professional gambler. Yeah, kind of <laughs> like that. So um, tell, tell people about your training with the MIT team. Yeah, like what, what we went through, how we trained the players. Yeah, I, I mean, out. I think most people have, you know, either read a book yeah. or seen a movie, and, it, and it's like people are throwing water at them. And you know. I, I think the, uh, the movie 21 kind of captured a little bit of what it felt like at the, uh, our training sessions. We didn't go to, like, an underground casino to, to uh, test our players. We kind of simulated it in a setting kind of like this. And, you know, we would deal to the, you know, have somebody deal to the players and we try to distract them, try to trick them up. We had um, checkout procedures that were fairly strict. Like you had so many um, counting errors that you could make, you know, um, within like five shoes you could have maybe three errors. Um, so many different betting errors. Like if, you, if you're off by one unit, um, then that was an er- a betting error. Um, if you made a basic strategy error, uh, immediate failure. Um, if you got cheated, 
um, depending, like if the dealer took your winnings and uh, if you, you know, if there was a push but the dealer took your money and you didn't catch that, that was uh, an automatic failure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had times when people would, you know, they get down to the last shoe and the dealer would do something tricky and take their money and they would lose and they would almost like go home crying almost. <laughs> um, not quite that bad, but, you know, you could try again next week. So, you know, pretty, pretty much people did and we were, you know, um, compared to some other teams, I think we we're in many ways kind of anal about uh, our checkouts and our training and our trip reports. We had a pretty strict uh, way of reporting. You had to write down every single shoe you played um, and how many people were at the table, what the count was when we sat down. We did mostly big player um, games, Gorilla or regular BPs. I'm assuming you know th- those terms all mean. Um, and uh, we did a lot of We did a few other things, but that was what we did 90% pro- percent of the time probably. So you have to go in and you have to keep track of everything. So usually like the big player, it was their job usually to like every time they got called in to remember and then they take a break, go to the bathroom, write down the notes. Okay, well, the count was 12. There were three other people. Uh, one of them left and when the count went, went up to 16, that was great. You know, uh, the deal, we, we, they, the penetration was five decks out of six, you know, one deck left. Uh, I, was, I was able to bet... Uh, you know, my table max was 5K times two hands. Last round, I was able to spread to three hands of, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. And we took all those notes, and then we had our own homegrown um, blackjack simulator. So this was in the mid early mid-90s. Uh, computers weren't quite as fast as they were right now. And so we kind of wrote our own that would get us... Uh, calculate the EV and the standard deviation, the CE, certainty equivalent. And we use those numbers to track our play and also figure out like how much the players would get paid versus the the, uh, the, the investors. And what kind of bankroll did the team have when you joined it? So we, when I joined it, there was one main team and probably had a couple million dollars, one to two million dollar bankroll. And then we split up. Um, the team was just getting kind of like too big and too unwieldy, and there was, I think, uh, some personality clashes. Uh, so a few months after I joined, we split up, and um, I went with Semyon and his team, which we called ourselves the Amphibians, and we nicknamed the other team the Reptiles, and that kind of <laughs> stuck. Um, although I, I think we didn't really quite think through the, uh, the actual... Um, you know, if reptiles didn't really evolve into amphibians or vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so we started that bank with 400,000. So the amphibians started with 400,000. And um, and then over the next couple of years, we grew that to about a million or so. And the other team had a million or two. And then um, we got back together again uh, the, at 2000. When the 1999 to 2000, we all thought like, hey, this is, could be a really big weekend. Let's all just join up our forces, combine our banks, play a giant bankroll. Bank and we did that. And that was, that was a really great feeling, having the team mm-hmm. just come back together. And in the meantime, there was like two or three other like splinter teams yeah. that had, had, had grown, uh, had uh, splintered off of both of our teams and then ended up coming back a lot of the players. So it was a really good feeling at the end there. Um, uh, and then, you know, we continued on, and there are actually people from the team that still play. Um, sometimes they call themselves MIT Black Deck Team, or they're on other teams. Um, 
and uh, still making money from it. A lot of them, some people still make all their living or most of the living from blackjack. A lot of them have gone on to uh, uh, again other uh, businesses and and made millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, probably way more money than they ever could dream of from the blackjack. But what they learned from playing blackjack, they're able to apply in in business. So with with that kind of bankroll, million dollar, what what kind of uh, betting? Yeah, we usually bet about like 0.1% units. So if we had a million dollar bankroll, it would have been like maybe thousand dollar betting units Mm -hmm. uh, on on two hands, usually. So we usually would try to play two hands when we had an edge. Um, We use a, a, a. a Kelly factor of 0.3 or 0.4 usually for our for our team. Um, I assume you guys are somewhat familiar with that. Yeah, a little more like just risk of ruin yeah. percentage. Yeah, we're yeah we um, we never really talked about risk of ruin. Our we effectively had no risk of ruin the way we ran our banks. So By we would continually vary how much we were betting based on based on our bankroll. Mm-hmm. Um, we also did what we would call mini banks, where we'd say, okay, we're going to have a bank for like one month. And we're going to pay the players. We're going to simulate and calculate what our EV and CE is and pay the players so that they would expect to earn some percentage in the long run. And we'd have spreadsheets and or computer programs that we'd go and analyze it, figure it all out. And it's kind of boring, but I think it's worked really pretty well for, for most of us. Like, we're, MIT students are kind of geared towards, yeah. the, you know, doing all of their that, those kind of calculations. They're not just doing the napkin results that I did on my early teams. Yeah, like we could have just taken the money and like split it up and, uh, <laughs> you know, okay, results. half, you, you know, you get 10%, you get 20%, but in, instead we did all this extra work and, you, you know, you got 11%, you got 19%. <laughs> so. so with that kind of betting, what's like any memorable biggest wins or losses? Yeah, we... we we had some weekends where we won like hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, and lost similar amounts. Um, we, uh, um, you know, there there are times when we would go from like a hand, one hand of twenty five to four hands of six thousand or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then so of course we big bet spread. <laughs> we get kicked out in the next weekend, but that was okay. You know, it was worth it. Yeah. Um, I think so. Like sometimes we were way too aggressive. And we never really worried too much about, didn't worry as much as we probably should have about getting kicked out of places. Um, but, you know, there's always other things to do. So then there's always other casinos that open up and you can, you know, like if you wait a long enough time, you can go back to those casinos. Uh, you you probably will get arrested by some of them for trespassing. You probably won't get convicted, but it could be a big hassle. So. I would say just try to avoid getting arrested. Uh, the other thing, sometimes people come up to me, poker players who are also blackjack players or vice versa, and they ask if I, you know, I know how they can get back into being allowed to play blackjack at the World Series of Poker. So if you want to play blackjack, if you want, I mean, play poker at the World Series of Poker, because, but they've been kicked out because of blackjack. So, um, you know, that might be a concern of yours. If you also play other games like poker and you want to be able to play, um, you can probably play poker in a cash game and not a problem, but if you get into a tournament and there was just a recent story, uh, a case where someone who had been kicked out playing 
uh, blackjack, I think, in Maryland at one of the Caesars, the Caesars Casino there. And he went and played, po- entered the poker tournament on a, like a slight variation of his name. And he made it to like into the money in the World Series. And they banned him in the middle of it. And so, you know, that's not pretty for either of them. They recently settled, I think, or they were going to settle. So I don't know how much they settled mm-hmm. for. But, you know, realize that although you could probably go back and play blackjack, you may or may not get arrested. But if you want to play poker, it's something to think about. Like once you get kicked out of a place, you probably don't want to go back again if you want to do anything else with them. So what uh, – oh, Andy, one time you were world champion at Rochambeau. Have you ever been able to capitalize on that? <laughs> Rochambeau's rock, paper, scissors. Or, <laughs> as you don't know. Um, and, yeah, I think we had, like, uh, uh, some friends of mine, I think we just had, like, a Rochambeau tournament with, like, 16 people, and I, I won that for, like, 100 bucks or something like that each. Um, but, you know, there's... Uh, poker is a lot like Rochambeau in, in, in a lot of ways in that, um, you know, you have to, like, if you can outguess your opponents, uh, their, their strategy, you can, you can have an advantage. Mm-hmm. The optimal strategy, of course, in Rochambeau, the theoretical, mathematical optimal is just play randomly. One third of the time do each and, and hopefully don't give away any tells when you're, when you're shaking your, your fist, um, well, we'll be starting RochambeauApprenticeship.com. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, let's talk about some of the similarities between card counting mm-hmm. and poker. Uh, what would you say are, are some of those similarities or, uh, or differences? Well, they both use cards. Uh, <laughs> usually a 52-card deck. Um, but, you know, obviously card counting in poker is not the same as card counting in blackjack. Um, people have, like, an idea... Well, first of all, with Texas Hold'em, there's nothing to count, really. You have the game that you see on TV, most people see, there's no counting. A seven-card stud, there's a lot of up cards, and they get folded, and you have to remember them. But there, it's more like bridge, in that you've got to remember all the cards, and the exact suits can sometimes matter. In, in poker, in blackjack, it doesn't matter. Um, I would say, we, although I've gone to a lot of poker boot camps, I don't think you can really teach somebody how to be a winning pet player in a weekend or a week of worth of boot camps, whereas I think you can do it in blackjack. Um, you still need a lot of practice, both of them. And um, there's uh, a lot of, uh, you know, there are, it, it, blackjack's a lot more mechanical, whereas poker, it depends on your opponent's. But in blackjack, it does too. Like, if you want to really have an advantage against the casino, you can't play optimal strategy every single time because they're going to recognize it and kick you out. Like, if you go there and you know the count's like plus 10 and you split 10s against a 5, that's probably going to get you kicked out the next time you're there or that time. And, you know, I, that's, I think the first time I got kicked out of the casino is because I split 10s against a 5. And it was justified, but, you know. So... Um, whereas in poker, you can go ahead and, you know, play optimally and people aren't going to kick you out. Um, you're, uh, people might not want to play with you if you play too well. So that, that's another thing. Like you want to be a friendly person. You want to be a person like when you play blackjack that the casino likes to have around. If you're, if you're a jovial person at the table, 
if you're not sitting there being super serious, the pit boss likes you, the floor, the your host likes you, that's going to extend the amount of time that you can play. Um, or maybe the host will tip you off and say, hey, you know, they're going to kick you out, you know, because of this. Or I can't give you comps anymore, but you can still play. <laughs> you know, sometimes if you're friendly, um, you know, maybe you should tip uh, a certain amount when you're playing blackjack uh, to get to keep playing. So obviously tipping theoretically is negative EV unless it actually gets you something in the long run. Yeah, if you can calculate <laughs> how it's going to. Right. Um, tipping could also be perceived by the casino as you like bribing the dealer. Um, so that's pretty rare that that would actually happen. But I've heard of cases that are pretty where they where they uh, accuse the dealers of, of colluding with the players, even though there probably wasn't any. What about the mental aspect, the difference? Uh... Yeah. So uh, in uh, both of them, you want to have a lot of conflict. Uh, concentration um, in blackjack you can't you don't want to like lose a count in the middle of a shoe you don't want to make a basic strategy or you have uh, you have a lot of the same things in poker um, in in poker though it's a lot of the uh, figuring out like the odds and the math it's not clear you always have to make assumptions about your opponents and how they play what hands they play uh, so um, whereas in blackjack, you know how the dealer is always going to play it; it's, it's fixed. So you, you, you. As far as the math goes in in blackjack, it's a lot simpler, and you can, you don't even have to know math really to, to be able to play blackjack. As long as you know the basic strategy and you know a little bit about how how to count and how to vary your bet enough with the count, and you make few enough mistakes. I uh, I would say uh, both games. So you don't know if you're making mistakes unless there's somebody there to tell you. In poker, you probably never know if you're playing a really winning game unless you're winning money because you don't know how your opponents are playing. In blackjack, you can, test, you can get tested by, by, by your friends or your, your teammates and know that you're, you're playing a positive game. But once you get into casino, you still don't know. Like We had people on the MIT team that they, their losses... Um, especially like when we looked at their standard deviations, they just didn't make sense. And, you know, they could have been cheating or they could have just been had a big flaw in their game. Or maybe they get to the casino, they're, they're, it's time to put out the big bets and they got too nervous and they didn't put it out. Or maybe they, you know, they would just mentally fool themselves into thinking that, well, you know, yeah, I'm maybe I'm supposed to bet five units, but I think it's really four or, or you know, or um, maybe they forget forget the count and you know instead of betting you know instead of the count being plus 15 they forgot and now it's plus five they think it's plus five and they don't bet enough so there's, it's um the uh there's a, there's a lot of parallels there there's a lot of skills that help you a lot i think probably the biggest one is bankroll management mm -hmm. that knowing um you know, in both games you never want to go broke right going broke is bad because you can't continue to make your money. It's like losing your tools of, the, of your trade. Uh, and both of them have a, you know, they have a long-term bankroll, right? And you also have your bankroll at the table. If you're in a poker tournament or in a cash game, whatever's at the table, that's what you can, that's what you can bet or bet what you can win. Or in a poker tournament, once you lose all your chips, you're out. 
same thing in the in the ta- at the table. Like you can't buy in for necessarily all the money, all of your bankroll. Even if you had it on you, you could run into currency transaction limits and things like that. So you have to worry about your bankroll. You don't want to go broke. Um, you don't want to. You don't want to um, be better. You can't. You never want to bet 100% of your bankroll on one hand. Maybe after splitting and doubling, et cetera, it's, it's okay. But before that, um, if you're if you have to if you're going to bet half your bankroll on one hand, that you're going to give you giving up a lot of edge on splitting and doubling down. So uh, I yeah. played some poker. I've played a lot of blackjack, and uh, you know, I remember driving home from a casino down thirty something thousand dollars, and it feels awful. But I think. I know I did everything right. I also know the feeling of driving home from a poker game, losing and saying, I don't know if I should have been playing against that competition, or I don't know if I was playing tight enough, you know? And there's sort of this this nagging of, did I play right? Do, do you experience that? Yeah, poker is hard because of that, because you can lose and you have to, you know, really be introspective and really um, analyze your play. And sometimes you can win a lot and think you're the best player in the world, but if you really looked at your play, you might have just gotten really lucky. And you should have actually won more. Yeah. Um, so I remember like talking to, to Phil Ivey after one tournament, and it, and that he won, and he and like he was kind of like down on himself because he didn't thought, think he played that well. <laughs> like he won first. Like you can't really do any better, right? But I guess he thought like he should have won an hour earlier or something. <laughs> he should have gotten an A plus plus. <laughs> That's funny. But but always trying to learn and whatever whatever it is, whether you're playing blackjack or you're playing poker, always trying to learn, always trying to be honest with yourself of the mistakes that you're making. Um, in in blackjack, it's usually easy to spot the mistakes, but you can't necessarily spot your own mistakes. In uh, in poker, it's really hard to to be honest with yourself and admit that the reason you lo- you lost is because of how you played, and to to take that to the next level and to figure out how to play better so you can win the next time. Um, in uh, in blackjack, if you go through a losing streak, you know I would recommend uh, you know having a friend go and test you and check you out and make sure that you're you're playing playing a good game. Um, you know, there are times we went on losing streaks with the MIT team, and we would occasionally think, wonder if we're being cheated by the casinos, like they were shorting the deck or adding fives into play, or 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 whether one of our players on our team was was stealing from us, um, and all those things are always possibilities, and you just have to always like be honest, and try to be honest with yourself, and uh, if the losing is bothering you, you should take a break. And do something else for a little while. Change games. Um, uh, go on vacation. Uh, spend time with your family. Regroup. Uh, refocus. Practice a little bit. Use that as an opportunity to to get better instead of uh, uh, instead of uh, making it worse by doubling down when you're actually not playing well. Mm, that's good advice. So what what techniques did you guys use? Was it Strictly card counting, big player spotters. We mostly focused on card counting, uh, basic card counting, big players, spotters. Um, we also did some shuffle tracking. Um, we would call it NRS, non-random shuffles, and we had some of our own techniques. But uh, we uh, we also did cuts, 
thin cuts, um, ace tracking, sequence tracking, um, a variety of different things. We also dabbled a little bit in other games. Uh, Chinese poker, we, we, we backed some people playing Chinese poker for a little while uh, in the 90s. Um, slot machines, uh, you know, or you, you can also like move on or have uh, play other games too. Video poker can be beaten. Um, Anyone know about video poker? <laughs> <laughs> um, Obviously, sports betting uh, is getting. I, I, you know, sports betting is uh, starting to be legalized in more states, and so I think there's a lot of opportunities there. And I think with sports betting, they're going to start expanding on online gambling in general. Poker, um, you know, maybe there'll be some blackjack sites. I know people that would play the some of the online blackjack sites for their promotions. Um, that can be tricky though, because you never know if you're gonna get paid. They might, yep. they might catch on, especially if you have to use multiple new accounts each time to do it. They might catch on eventually and not pay you. Which so. techniques did you guys find were the most profitable? Um, most consistently profitable was base, the basic big player, um, but the most profitable per hour, I think, um, was when we could do the thin cuts. Mm. So um, most of you probably know, I don't know if you know what cutting is. You're trying to, you can, if you get to see the bottom card, um, and you can then use that to steer to, to uh, either to your player or to the dealer, um, depending on what it is. How much that time can be, would it take to, to master that skill? Uh, it, it probably takes about the same amount of time as learning how to ca card count. Um, you know, one skill is trying to c cut consistently, and also you want to uh, know exactly how many cards you cut, so even if it's not that consistent. Um, some casinos will let you cut thin, like 17 cards, something like that. Uh, other casinos will make you cut at least a deck. And then that's a little bit harder. There's more variation there. Um, and, you know, some casinos won't allow it at all, uh, won't let you cut, or they do a much better job of hiding the back card. They have a cut card, and they always put it there. The, um, and, you know, so finding the casinos that with the right rules. Um, and, you know, sometimes, like, the casinos aren't aware of the different techniques, and they get really confused, and they don't know what you're, what you're doing. And uh, I remember once there was this little, they started having these uh, cruise ships to nowhere um, near Boston. And we started to go on these ships and uh, we were cutting. And the, uh, the casino manager like knew we were doing something. And, you know, instead of like banning us, he was just trying to watch us and learn. So he started, he cut off like two decks or three decks or four decks from the shoe. And <laughs> which was good. which was good for us because like we, we didn't yeah we uh, we only really wanted to play one deck and you know he was watching us. Um, we also tried something. Uh, we tried a tricky thing with uh, with craps. The uh, if they once they would cross over into national waters, they'd have to pay everybody that that had their bets out there or cancel it. So we're like, okay, we're gonna like make sure to have our bets out there like. And so, but so we bet like a thousand dollars or whatever in crafts, and then they held the boat in international waters <laughs> to, so that they, they they would you know slow it that down. <laughs> That's really funny. So yeah, um, so the um, 
we you know we did some shuffle tracking um, where you know you track a clump, you track a deck of cards uh, or more. Um, you know sometimes you take advantage of machines, uh, shuffle machines that were faulty. Um, we uh, would only do things that that were le- legal. So there were obviously there's always opportunities that you can beat any game in a casino. The only question is whether it's legal and whether it's worth your time. So um, we didn't, at least things that we didn't think were illegal. Like um, we did, I did get arrested in, in, in um, Monte Carlo and they tried to claim that card counting or, or team play was illegal. Same thing in, in Canada. Uh, you know, there'd be like one cop that says, oh, this is illegal, but they'd always let you go. So. What's your most memorable back off? My mem- most memorable one was when uh, the first time I got backed off I think it was the first time. Um, well, the first time I got arrested anyway was uh, in, Mon- Mon- in Monte Carlo, the uh, principality and not the casino here, or the former casino here. And <laughs> um, so it was me, Semyon Dukach, and uh, another player uh, were there. And we, were going, we had a whole European vacation uh, trip planned. We flew into London signed up for the casinos there. This was at the time when you had to actually sign up in advance and then wait a few days. So then we just signed up, um, cruised over to the, to the continent, and um, uh, Monte, went to Monte Carlo to play, and this was like just before the Grand Prix, and they, they've got like the race course set up, and you know we're, we're, we're playing a little bit, and got our, we got comps for the Grand Prix coming up, and... Uh, we're winning, and we're doing we're doing cuts and counting. So we were doing like thin cuts. They didn't care. They didn't try to cap block the back card or anything. Um, and we were up, you know, we we're up. I don't know, ten thousand euros, twenty thousand, nothing too huge. And then um, the other the other the other person with us, uh, one of the women on the team, she like went went away for like took a break or something. And then we saw her like coming back, and they were like had a, were escorting her to the back room, you know. And so we knew it was up. And uh, the uh, security and the casino managers came up, but they waited. They were they were nice enough to wait to the end of the shoe. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, and of course we were waiting there. Like we, you know, if it was if it was something like that in Vegas, we might be like, okay, we're just going to get out of there, right? One of our one of our players is back room. Nothing's gonna really happen or anything, but we're we're in a foreign country, you know. They they got they got our passport and everything. We're not we're not gonna leave, but we're not gonna leave the shoe early either. <laughs> <laughs> she would have been mad if like we had just like you know, if we had to abandon the shoe just just to, um, just to save a few minutes. But you know they stopped us. They brought us all in the back room, and I remember there was like this mirror wall. And then all of a sudden, like, this door opened up in front of it. We go in the back room, and they, they have us, you know, she's there already. We're, all three of us are there. And, um, you know, we hear them. They get on the phone. Uh, and this is in the mid-'90s. So um, they're like, you know, blah, blah, blah in French. Uh, Griffin Investigations, Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, okay, you guys get, get, get together in a corner. And they had, like, a camera up there. And they're like, look, family portrait. And... <laughs> So, and and then we're like, you know, we're like, we want to see our, our ambassador and, you know, uh, someone walks in and there's like a gun and a badge. We're like, here's your ambassador right now, you know, a police uh, investigator. 
inspector. <laughs> and then they, they, um, they finally, so, you know, we don't know, like, if they wanted to make an example of us or, or what. Um, so, but at, at one point they said, okay, um, do you guys have chips? And, you know, we're, give, get, they all gave me their chips, and I went, and they, they escorted me to the cage. We cashed out. They gave us the cash. And then, um, and then they said, okay, the cops are here. We're going to escort you out. And it was, like, lined with policemen. Like, on the way out of the casino and outside, there was, like, all his police vehicles just for, like, the three of us. And, like, we're just card counting. I mean, we're cutting, too, I guess. But And, you know, they put uh, me, me and Semyon in the back of a police van and the, the woman that we were with uh, in, like, a separate cruiser or whatever. And then they're racing along the, the course of the Grand Prix <laughs> to the to the the... the to the police station, and then we were held there for a few hours, and then they kind of forgot about us. Well, they were, in, they were interrogating us, um, and for some reason, they they wanted to know how we got there, and we had rented a car, and they wanted to. Then they, I went with the policeman to the car, and he's like ripping up the back and searching for something, and I thought like, oh no, he's going to plant something on us, uh-huh. right? They're going to. Or like we had stopped in Amsterdam, like you know maybe somebody, maybe whoever rented the car for first like had left like some pot in there or something, like but they didn't find anything and eventually they let us go. Um, I think uh, Semyon had like something in his wallet that might that he was afraid about, like a whole list of like all the team members and something, but somehow they didn't find that. Wow. So we, I guess we got pretty lucky that we got an escort to the border, and as soon as we got across the border, we found the nearest payphone and called the guys back back in Boston and told them the story. <laughs> that's, that's so we made a couple, we made like, I don't know, 20,000 euros or something. But you Not made a, a memory that will last a lifetime. Not a memory that will last a lifetime. You never saw the Grand Prix. I never got to see the Grand Prix. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. <laughs> well, we're on the course. Yeah. We, did, we have to ride in it. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did go back years later for a poker tournament, and uh, they po- told the poker tournament director that, you know, uh, Matt Savage, uh, who's a friend of mine, like, hey, you got this cheater in your <laughs> poker tournament. And he's like, yeah, like, who, who's that? Like, oh, Andy Block. He, like, he plays Block. He's like, yeah, I know Andy. I don't think card counting is cheating. And they're like, okay, well, we, we, it's fine with us. Just tell him, like, not to go play in the casino. You know, he can come to the... Uh, to the cocktail party or whatever, but you know, can't play. And then you know, I meet up with meet them at the cocktail party, and they're like, "Okay, you can't play anything." And you know, and you know, one guy's like, uh, "I don't know, maybe may uh, American roulette." <laughs> <laughs> no, not even American roulette. So, <laughs> so uh, I know you're involved in, in some charities. Do you do you want to share about any of those, or how how you got involved with them, or? Um. Yeah, so uh, one of uh, one charity that I got involved with, um, well, I think I donated to a couple different charities. I was uh, in a poker tournament um, that was like a celebrity pro am, uh, 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 event with, uh, and I made it to like the final table with uh, Don Cheadle, and I said, "Hey, if if I win, I'm going to donate, you know, uh, hundred thousand dollars to." Um, uh, Africa charities because he was wearing um, a uh, uh, a Darfur Save Darfur sweatshirt or something mm. like that. So I ended up winning, and so I donated some 
a hundred thousand dollars to to them and um yeah i've been involved in charity events most of the poker tournaments at least outside of a few in the world series i play nowadays are charity events of one kind or another and do you play much poker these days i i haven't been playing a lot lately uh because i have a couple young kids and um some things are more important than it's a little bit more more important it's hard to play poker tournaments when you have kids especially like when your wife is pregnant and um you can't really play in a poker tournament and then if she gets goes into labor (laughs) just hold it you know just wait a few hours it's one thing you know if you're in the middle of a shoe and you want to play to the end of the shoe uh, um, (laughs) that you could probably finish um and then still get home and take her to the hospital but you know when you're in the in the poker tournament yeah (laughs) and uh i know multiple people told me that your dvd on mm-hmm. blackjack got got them started right spartan is yeah. that correct oh, and and cool. as another First, guy probably that i've encountered and i learned through yours yeah oh, cool. well right. and you know you know the hot shoe yes the hot yeah. shoe is a, a great documentary i don't know if you guys so i've seen that so you had a copy so when there. i was yes yeah. that's my copy when when we were running our our team it, i think we were uh about a two hundred thousand dollar bankroll we've been playing for for about uh, I don't know, almost almost a year, just like 20, 30 hours a week, and and just isolated, like four of us, just didn't know other car carriers. And we got a copy of that, mm-hmm. and it was like it's movie night, and we all got together one person's house, and it was oh, so yeah. it was like, and uh, Tommy, you're in that, yeah, yeah. Uh, Stanford Wong is in it. Um, it's just like such such a blast. But I think Peter um, Griffin was in it, or no, no, not Peter. Um, who else is it? It's been a while since I watched hey, it. Mine, I didn't yeah. yeah, I feel like at one point your face was actually like uncensored. In yeah, it, so we saw you. Was that yeah. like a mistake? Because everyone else. No, in in the beginning, I think. Well, <laughs> it got it. It took him like several years to make it. Oh yeah. And, and then a couple more, another year or two to uh, finish uh, producing it mm-hmm. and distribute it, and or and you know he went on a couple of he went to a couple of, uh, of festivals and showed it there. Um, so at first I I didn't want my face on there, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, like, later on, the next time, he interviewed me. I think once we were in Vegas and we did, like, the in-casino mm-hmm. stuff, then I was more willing to, to uh, have my face on camera. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, for us, it was like, oh, my gosh, they're doing what we do. Yeah. And, and uh, just, I don't know, that, that connection. Um, but uh, thanks for making that DVD. I know it's been helpful uh-huh. for a lot of people. At, at this point, honestly, uh, if you're okay with it, can we open up to a few questions? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, uh, just going back to the shuffle tracking. Um, so I don't know how connected you are, like how, with other people, I don't know if you're active with that, but or if you hear like how today's climate is in terms of that, but uh, I'm just curious, like, like right now there's just, you know, they're, they've been switching a lot to the, uh, AS, the automatic shuffle machines more and more, but even if they do have a non-random hand shuffle, uh, they're getting a lot more and more complex. It's very hard to find like a one-pass riffle and restack, um, and and it's more like you know you're gonna get a lot more two passes and uh, whatever step ladders and things like that. So I'm just curious, and in, in, when you were active, what it looked like, and maybe what whether like your generation had something to do with the fact that they, there's all these policy changes. Um, if you could, and yeah. also I guess my final question is like. 
like in my like I feel like with like something that has like up to like fifty percent contamination, it's just not worth my time to pursue or try to track through that. Um, am I wrong to be thinking that way, or um, should I really take the time to like grow the different types of uh, tracks that um, you know just as a tool set? Yeah, I, th- I think it's worthwhile to look into everything at least a little bit. Yeah, and, which I have, but, but I, because like sometimes you're gonna find something that you have a big edge at, and then you can really exploit. But you and you never really know. When we were playing, there was few. There weren't very many uh, automatic shuffle machines. They would occasionally come up with one, and it would last a couple of years. Some of them were actually pretty beatable. I think there was like a three deck shuffle machine in the. I remember like in the early '90s, it was pretty countable. Um, it was like a continuous shuffle machine, but you knew like it would take a while for like the deck to get back into play, mm-hmm. um, and people would take advantage of them. So sometimes some of these machines you can actually beat just as much or even more. You can take advantage of them. Sometimes the machines are broken or partially broken and they don't shuffle well. So I wouldn't necessarily rule out any machine, but I think they're all getting better. Machines are getting better. They're getting cheaper. So the casinos are putting them in everywhere. Um, But there's, you know, always new casinos and new employees, and and sometimes people don't understand why there's certain procedures. Like, uh, Like, I don't know if you guys heard about the Phil Ivey, case with Baccarat, uh, mini Baccarat, and, you know, they violated so many of their basic procedures in that case for him to go and be able to, well, him and his partner to, to be able to beat that game. Um, you know, he wanted, they actually wanted a shuffle machine because they didn't want the dealer to do what they normally do is when they cut the deck and they spin it around 180 degrees so that to stop the, exactly what they were doing. All they would have to do is do that. So there's always opportunities and sometimes the game, the challenge isn't um, being able to beat the game, is to get the game that, you know, get the casino to offer the game that's beatable. Gotcha. You know, finding the game, getting them to agree to, your, to, to uh, what you want them to do. And if you're just a small gambler, you're not going to be able to do it. But if you're someone who's betting millions of dollars, you might be able to do it. I have, I have, I have thought of the fact that, like, if uh, an ASM, like, breaks down... Because they're so used to that, right? What they do might they do? resort to like a very extremely simple shuffle because they're not trained to yeah. have game protection. So they, those and the dealers aren't used to shuffling. Yeah, and so even if they have a more complicated shuffle, they might be flashing cards and fumbling cards, bending cards, and then you can have an edge over something like that. Um, but would you say in general, like back in your days, there was just a lot more simple ones? And there was a lot of simple ones. There were some complicated team. ones, and you would just not. Shuffle track on those. Okay. I remember, like Foxwood had a pretty, a more challenging uh, tr- shuffle to, to track, but there was like plenty of other casinos in Vegas and everywhere else that had trackable ones. Did the MIT team use deviations when they were counting? Yeah, we did. Um, I think that's some, something that maybe got us a lot more attention than we needed to. So um, I normally don't. I, you know wait until people are actually beating the game and having big edge before like teaching the deviations like the main deviation is insurance and so we always would do that but you'd have to get past a higher level of checkout to do the deviations because if you make a mistake um it's worth more it's more harmful than what you might gain from it um and also some will just get you kicked out splitting tens will probably 
I'm sure now even still will get you kicked out or get you on their radar and get you in um depends get on you the noticed. casino. But it depends on the casino and depends on who you are and how and if you're able to act the right way like you're just a drunk idiot. I think most most uh, casino have employees that know like if you're splitting tens you're either, either an idiot or a card counter and if you can't convince them that you're an idiot yeah. they're going to kick you out. So um like in my DVD, there's a scene there. I think at the end where, well, in the middle, I said like, you know, don't split tens. And at the end, I know I'm going to get kicked out, so I'm just splitting everything. So if you know you're going to get kicked out and you know you can play the hand there, go ahead and split tens. But it, realize that might be the last round that you play at that casino. Right. So in the book, bringing down the house is a, uh, a part of the book that describes Mohegan Sun's opening weekend, yeah. and his two MIT teams that absolutely crushed them. Uh, effectively, basically, just ruining it for card counters. Up <laughs> You're blaming well. us for that. Yeah, is, are you part of that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I was. So, do, um, do you want to offer an apology yeah. to? <laughs> I'm so sorry. We won like you know, three, four hundred thousand in that weekend, and and then I went back during the week, and then the next weekend we all got kicked out. Yep, that is exactly what happened, and it was kind of funny. So there's two teams, the reptiles and the amphibians, pretty much. And the reptiles got down there first, and we we're like, oh, no, they're going to ruin it for all of us. But then they all decided to leave, like, watch football or something. <laughs> <laughs> and they just left it open for us, and we're there. Like, we're seriously going, like, from 25 to four hands of 6,000, because 6,000 was their maximum, I think, you know. Um, and uh, and because they were worried about cheaters and dealers making mistakes and stuff like that. And... Um, yeah, I think that, especially per hour, um, that was probably our most profitable weekend ever, especially, like, when you fa factor in the travel time was only, like, two hours instead of having to fly to Vegas or, you know, anywhere else in the country. So, um, I think they, yeah, we probably ruined it for a while for everyone. They did have some good video poker there for a long time that I played for a long time. Um, I don't know if they I don't think they have it anymore. But they had they had some video poker that was ninety nine point nine seven percent or something. Yes, and I played it a lot. And uh, you could sell your points for gold. I think I lost my points. I just had so many at the end. I never got rid of it. But so you know, sometimes like you might, they might like not let you play blackjack there, but they might be more profitable things. Between the reptiles and amphibians, did you guys have the same like call and signals and and. We uh, whatever way to pass the count. Yeah, so we had we had like two different sets of signals. We had some verbal signals for the count from one from zero to twenty, and then if it was more than twenty, it, we would like use like swear words to, to say like you know like you know, like fucking great or something. <laughs> you know that means it was like twenty eight or something actually. Um, but we, yeah, we started off with like one set of signals, and then we we changed our signals. Some of our words we changed because. It, they were just really awkward to say. Like, we had bowling be number be ten, like, and try to work bowling into a casino. Yeah. Okay, at, at you know the Red Rock, you can say, oh, let's go bowling or something. But you know, I remember once we, you know, at the table, like one of the new spotters asked the dealer like really loudly, "Is there any bowling around here?" <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> So we changed that to a much more common word, very easy word to say. So, um, um, but when we re when we um, got back together 
for that weekend, we had some people would like join up with the other team, and um, so we had to go and like agree what our signals were. Um, and then we also had like a, a bunch of signals. Um, a lot of car counters have them. Were you know heat? Uh, I want to I like talk to you. Like you know heat was always like this. You know end of sessions like this. Uh, you know, I want to talk to you or I want to see you or something like that. Um, and then we had like the call-in signals, but the call-in signals were the ones that we would change session by session. So, you know, this might have been a call-in, but the next day it would be this, or the next day it would be this, or the next day it would be this. And so those we would change up. And I know like in the movie or the book or whatever, it kind of made it seem like we always had the same ones, but we didn't. Does MIT have a team today? On uh, I don't know if they have it on campus. I know there are people that play, um, and we did have for a while. We did have our practices on campus, and then for a variety of reasons, we we started meeting in people's houses or businesses. Semyon was starting started a business in Central Square, which is just a mile away from campus, and so we would meet there um, during uh, the late nineties. We got time for one or two more questions. Did, Har did Harvard ever have a competing team? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was at Harvard, I was playing. I I for law. I went to Harvard for law school, and um, I met some some of my friends there. Recruited onto the MIT team. I don't think they they there may or may not have been a team that called themselves the Harvard team, but not that I know. Of. You mentioned Monaco or Monte Carlo being arrested outside the U.S. Anywhere else outside the U.S. and why? Um, Niagara Falls, Canada, it was arrested once um, for card counting, and they I was there just me and one other guy, and um, they we um, I think they tried to wanted to claim that like team play because I was singling him. I was the counter and he was the big player and they wanted to try to argue that was it but the real reason i think that they arrested us then and they wouldn't admit this is i the they had communication with the border patrol border people so we lost some money but we had some traveler's checks with us just you know in the 90s when people actually had traveler's checks and used them or we had a check or something that we were going to buy traveler's checks, whatever it is we needed some more money so we went back across the border uh, to the U.S. side to go and cash them, and we got stopped there um, going on the way back in or something. Yeah, I think pretty sure it was on the way back in, and they, you know, give us some heightened scrutiny, and, um, you know, like, okay, empty your pockets out, and I had a Palm Pilot. So this, I'm dating this. Like, it was, you know, <laughs> Palm Pilots are, yeah, you know, big. <laughs> big things. They're not very sophisticated. They weren't phones. They could... and you know, they turn it on, and I have, like, a blackjack strategy trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're like, what's that? I'm like, oh, it's a black, you know, whatever, blackjack chart. And so we think that they were communicating with the casino. So when we got back to the casino, um, I don't know, my pockets felt a little full, so I'd, like, empty the Palm Pilot out because I need space for the chips and stuff. And then we went to play, and then they arrested us, and they thought, like, we were using a device, and they wanted, like, to search our pockets and stuff. And at first, like, they weren't telling me what was going on. But the other guy, the, you know, they, they were like, oh, we think you're using a device. And he's like, you want me to take off my shoes? I'll empty my pockets. Should I drop my pants? <laughs> <laughs> and um, then they, they let us go, and then they 
dinner. <laughs> but they didn't let us play anymore, and we lost money that weekend, too. And then on the way back across, um, they must have told the U.S. Uh, border people, too, because, um, uh, you know, even before we got to the, got to the, it's just turnstiles, or it used to be anyway, like, you know, it's like you're going paying a toll kind of thing. And, you know, they asked if you have anything to declare. But even before we got there, a guy was already headed over there to, like, stop us. And I'm like, do we have anything to declare? I'm like, yeah, we got more than 10000 in cash. They brought us in. They, like, kind of interrogated us a little bit. I happened to have, like, an article or something that recently even been published about the MIT team. Eventually they let us go and without a problem. But uh, So do be careful if you are crossing international borders. Um, the law is... If you have ten more than ten thousand dollars in cash, um, and casino chips may or may not count as uh, uh, to that limit. Um, uh, you don't do no one does traveler's checks anymore, but those would count towards that limit. Um, just and you're supposed to also even declare when you're leaving the country, but there's almost no way to do it. It's really hard to do it. So if you are stopped before getting on a plane and asked about it, you probably want to tell the truth. Um, yeah, our team had $117,000 seized at the border. On the way back in? Because, or, or, yeah, because they they thought they did it right, but, you know, you declare leaving the U.S., mm -hmm. declare entering Canada, Canada declare leaving Canada, mm -hmm. declare re-entering the U.S. They missed that first step. Right. So, so it's not you, clear, and there's yeah. no easy way, especially when you're driving, they're just waving you through. Yep. Like, And then when you're flying, there's been times... I've been trying to declare that I have money, and, like, nobody knows what to do. Like, you know, you go up to the gate, and you're like, I want to declare this. They're like, oh, you got to go back out of the security to the – and then you go there and, you know, to the, to the customs, and then the customs people are like, I don't know what you're supposed to do. I don't know. I fill this out for out or whatever. Yeah. So a big pain, and if you do one thing wrong – they're going to try and charge you. They're trying to seize all the money, and they, and they, yeah. they probably won't be able to keep it all. But yeah, they find us ten thousand dollars with no explanation, mm -hmm. not even even amount. The guy, one guy had you know sixty, and the other fifty or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. It was five thousand dollar fine each. It wasn't a percent. It's like no explanation, but it's probably still cheaper than a legal fee that we got it. Yeah, you, you could have challenged it a little bit. Yeah, um, probably should have been. I'd say. Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of lot of legal issues, and only a small amount did we ever actually challenge. And you know, we probably should have challenged them more, way more of them. We've had casinos try to keep our our money. There was actually a case in Nevada, um, Richard Chen versus uh, versus the Monte Carlo, the Monte Carlo Casino this time, um, where they they seized uh, his money and didn't want to, didn't want to pay him. Initially, they kept his buy-in and his winnings, and then they gave the buy-in back. And we took that to the Supreme Court in Nevada, and they said, like, hey, even though he was using a novelty passport. It was a passport from a country that didn't actually exist. <laughs> um, so technically, it wasn't illegal to own it and to have it. Um, and even the Supreme Court, uh, it, you know, as long as you're not using it for an illegal purpose. So he, wasn't, he shouldn't have been using it. Um, but the Supreme Court said, like, hey, you know, it's okay to try to hide your identity in order to play the game. Now, if, he, if he'd already been kicked out of the casino, that would have been a different story. But he had never actually been. And eventually we won that case, but we didn't get our legal fees back. So it cost us, I don't know, like 5K or 10K or something in legal fees. But we got the 47K or whatever back. 
and now we have this opinion. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Yep. Give Andy a round of applause.